Now hear God's holy word from 2 Samuel chapter 19, continuing our study in the book of 2 Samuel. David has just learned about the death of his son Absalom and has been weeping. And Joab was told, behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard it said that day, the king is grieved for his son. And the people stole back into the city that day as people who are ashamed steal away when they flee in battle. But the king covered his face and the king cried out with a loud voice, O oh, my son Absalom, O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, Today you have disgraced all your servants who today have saved your life the lives of your sons and daughters, the lives of your wives and the lives of your concubines, and that you love your enemies and hate your friends. For you have declared today that you regard neither princes nor servants. For today I perceive that if Absalom had lived and all of us had died today, then it would have pleased you well. Now, therefore, arise, go out and speak comfort to your servants. For I swear by Yahweh, if you do not go out, not one will stay with you this night. And that will be worse for you than all the evil that has befallen you from your youth until now. Then the king arose and sat in the gate. And they told all the people, saying, There is the king sitting in the gate. So all the people came before the king, for every one of Israel had fled to his tent. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father, we praise you for your word, and as we continue slogging through these terrible chapters in the life of your servant David, we at the same time see the distress and the sorrow and the confusion and the dismay and the anxiety of the world around us, and we see that just as you are pointing us in these chapters to uh, David's greater son, your son, and our King Jesus, so Father, in the midst of our sorrow and travail, point us to Jesus. So we pray that today, by your Holy Spirit, as we study this, point us to Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It seems that every 90s family sitcom, and, or at least I mean, even in the 80s, the 80s family sitcoms, and then kind of the 90s you know, teeny sitcoms, they all, they all had that one episode. They were all featured the one story where the parents left town for the weekend, and the eldest teen was left in charge of the house. And that eldest teen, despite the counsel of the very wise, obedient younger children, that older teen decided to throw a small party for his or her friends. But that, that small party turned into a big party. Things spiral out of control. Some valuable property gets damaged. And then there's this mad dash to clean up the house and pull everything back together before the parents return from their trip. And then when the parents do return, the children all line up to ingratiate themselves to the parents, to show how obedient and dutiful they were in the parents' absence. And then the whole cover-up gets blown at the last minute. Everything falls apart by some little forgotten detail that, that blows the cover uh, story. And it's all humorous, but we've seen it a hundred times and we know this. I, I thought that that was just a tired, recycled sitcom trope until a few years back I read a news story about a teenager, 16-year-old, that threw a wild party in his parents' absence. He threw a wild party over the weekend, ended up with 500 guests in his parents' house, and they did $20,000 worth of damage to the house and to the yard. And the cops were called and there were fines and all kinds of stuff. And how do you, how do you recover from that? And I, I 
and again, I thought this was just a wild, crazy thing. I must have had a very boring childhood because I told that story to my wife this week. I better not repeat this, but I'm going to anyway. Um, <laughs> when she was a kid, her older sister threw a wild, crazy party while her parents were gone. And I think the, the, the punchline of that story was a green margarita mix ended up on the ceiling of the living room. And that's all you need to know about that, that party. <laughs> How do, you, how do you recover from that kind of thing? I don't, what, what do you say? What do you do? Well, we aren't studying a crazy teen comedy. We're, we're not, this is not a 1980s family sitcom that we're reading about. In fact, the events that we're studying are very grievous and quite serious and quite sober. But David in these chapters is in the position of a father who's left home and now he returns he comes back to find everything in ruins. Everything is destroyed. Everything's pulled apart. And now he's facing these people who are lining up, ingratiating themselves to him, climbing over each other to confirm his favor and their loyalty. Like children who have been disobedient and destructive while dad was away. They all line up now and they fight for his attention and they fight and accuse each other. Absalom's rowdy house party at the palace has done far more damage, not only to the house, but to the kingdom than any rebellious teenager possibly could. In fact, dad didn't just leave for the weekend. Absalom drove his father out of the kingdom with his rebellion. Now remember where we are in the life of David. His adult son, Absalom, was extremely frustrated with the way that David was managing his affairs in the kingdom. He found his father to be passive, and, and wouldn't take action. So Absalom took things into his own hands. And so uh, eventually Absalom gets so frustrated that he engineers a full rebellion against his father. Absalom steals the favor of the people. He steals the affection of the people and Absalom leads a revolt. Now in response to this, David, the king, leaves Jerusalem he crosses the Jordan River. He leaves Israelite territory and he goes into exile among the Gentiles where he's protected and where he gains allies and strength. So Absalom then enters Jerusalem, amasses an army, and then goes out to the wilderness to pursue his father with the goal of killing his father. David then, now strengthened with his allies, he sends his forces out in defense, and in the chaos of battle, Absalom's mule drives him straight into a tree where his head is stuck, and then Joab, David's general, David's right arm, who does all the dirty work, Joab, then goes and kills Absalom together with his 10 uh, closest fighting men. So David's bloodthirsty nephew, Joab, kills Absalom in the end. Now David, where we just picked up, David has just heard the news of the death of Absalom, and David is weeping. Even though the enemy has been subdued, even though the rebellion has been put down, David doesn't rejoice. David is inconsolable. He's weeping loudly and, and, and openly. He just keeps saying it over and over. At the end of chapter 18, the middle of chapter 19, all he says, all David says is, Oh, my son, Absalom. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son, my son, Absalom. Over and over and over. That's all he says. And Joab rebukes him for this. Because David is showing more concern for Absalom at this point than he is for the kingdom. He's putting his family before the kingdom. And he's done this before. David has failed to deal properly with his son Amnon, you remember. And instead of confronting Amnon's sins, 
he puts his personal feelings as father before his responsibilities as king. And here, now, when he should be praising his army, he should be celebrating their victory. He should be affirming his appreciation. They put their lives on the line for David and for the kingdom. And some of them were killed. So they took losses. And instead of praising them, he's weeping. Now, understandably, this totally demoralizes the army. They go slinking back home, back to their tents, as if they had just been whooped. As if they had just had their heads handed to them, they go slinking back as a defeated army. They should have been rejoicing in the Lord's deliverance over the, over the serpent, but now they're, they're acting like they've been whipped. David's grief is contagious so that even a, a rejoicing army is ruined by his grief and his misplaced sorrow. So think for just a minute how you're griping and how you're grumbling and your failure to express gratitude affects other people. You have a great power, even a superpower, you might call it. You can demoralize anybody with your griping and your moaning and your complaining and your sorrow. You can give other people a place for anxiety when they should be at peace, when they really should be content and grateful. You can ruin somebody's day. Do you see how essential it is to curb and to control your emotions in such a way that not that you can't ever cry, not that you can't ever laugh, not that you can't ever be anxious, but know the power of your emotions to influence and affect other people and to be aware of that. And David should have been aware of this. David is a better man than this. Remember when Bathsheba's first child died as an infant? Remember the whole time the child was sick, David had been grieving, he was fasting, and he was praying the whole time the child was sick. But then after the Lord took the child's life, what did David do? He washed his face, he got up, he ate breakfast, and he accepted God's providence. He was able to do that in the past. He's not doing that now. Why is he so out of his mind with grief? Is he thinking of all the points in his life where he ought to have intervened and acted, where he ought to have restrained Absalom's rebellion? Well, I don't know, and we can't see into his heart or his mind, but David is very clearly sending a message to his troops. I loved Absalom more than I love you. Though Absalom was disloyal to me, I love him more than I love my faithful men. Now, if, if David doesn't wash his face, if he doesn't put on some clean clothes, his men, Joab say, your men are going to abandon you and you're going to completely lose the kingdom. You thought Absalom took the kingdom from you. That's not what's going to take the kingdom from you. Your misplaced sorrow and open shameful grieving right now is what's going to lose you the kingdom. The kingdom is fractured, David. You need to get up, act like a king and lay aside your grief and address this. So, thankfully, David listens to Joab. He sets his throne up in the gate of the city where he's been hiding in Gentile territory. And the army passes in review before him so he can show his appreciation, so he can show his honor for their sacrifices. Now, he's got to begin the work of renewing the kingdom. Now he's got to pull everything back together that Absalom wrecked. And there are going to be three factions that David is going to have to deal with here in the next several verses. If the kingdom is going to be repaired, we have to pacify three groups. The first are the northern tribes of Israel, the ten tribes of, of Ephraim and the others of the north. They've always been on shaky footing. 
there have always been these, these conflicts between north and south. Um, Ephraim in particular, the tribe of Ephraim, has this um, inferiority complex. Going all the way back to Jacob's blessing of his sons, when, you remember, Ephraim and Manasseh were Joseph's sons. When, when Jacob lays his hands on Judah, he, he deems them the royal tribe. He says, the, the royal scepter is not going to depart from your house. You are the royal tribe. That's Judah. But on Ephraim, he lays this blessing. You, you're going to have a double portion of everything. You're going to abound in people and you're going to abound in territory. When they go to carve up the land, Ephraim gets the biggest territory because they've got the most people. Ephraim always has the most. Ephraim's always the biggest, always the biggest tribe. But they have this inferiority complex because they're not the royal tribe. And because of this, Ephraim always has one foot out the door and, the, and they will take the other tribes with them. They're, they're, they seem always ready to split. So David has to figure out one more time, how do we grab them and how do we pull them back in? That's the first group that he's got to deal with, the first faction, the northern tribes of Israel. Secondly, we have the men of Judah. We would think that David's own tribe would be on his side. David's brothers from his own tribe, however, pledged their support to Absalom. The first place Absalom went when he left town was down to Hebron, to a city in Judah. And he, he gathered significant support from the men of Judah. So now, now David has to wrap up his own countrymen, his own brothers in Judah. And then thirdly, we have the little tribe of Benjamin. What's their beef? What's their deal? Well, that's the tribe of Saul, uh, the tribe that, that keeps wallowing in envy and bitterness. So they're no longer the royal tribe. At one time, Benjamin was the royal tribe when Saul was on the throne, but now we're not the royal tribe anymore. And we're small and we, we're, we're always marginalized. And so Benjamin uh, needs to be pacified as well. So now David has to wisely, diplomatically, carefully deal with all three groups, the 10 northern tribes of Israel, his own countrymen of Judah, and the tribe of Benjamin, if he's going to put things back together. There is a mess waiting for him at home, which is why he's delaying his return. Maybe you would too. If you had all this mess waiting for you and you're comfortable uh, out of town in a city, maybe you would delay your return. And that's why David at this point is not returning to Jerusalem. Now, my goal today, we just read the first few verses of chapter 19. My goal today is to get to the end of chapter 20 because this is one long narrative and I was looking for a way to break it up this week. And so I, I couldn't, there's not a real clear stopping point. So I'm gonna read big sections I'm going to read big sections and make short comments or else we'll be here until the start, you know, like three o'clock or four o'clock this afternoon. We don't want to do that. So I'm going to read big sections and then make very brief observations along the way. So buckle in and read along if you can. And we're going to cover chapter 19 and 20 today. Now, all the people, verse nine, were in a dispute throughout all the tribes of Israel saying, the king saved us from the hand of our enemies. He delivered us from the hand of the Philistines. And now he has fled from the land because of Absalom. But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, has died in battle. Now therefore, what, why do you say nothing about bringing back the king? Interestingly enough, Israel, the northern tribes, they're the first ones to speak up here. They aren't overjoyed that David is king. They have to get that little hook in there, that little jab. You know, we anointed Absalom king, and we'd be a lot happier with him, but he's dead. So we got it. All, we've, all we're left with is David. And we can't have our king out there living among the Gentiles. So Israel positions themselves as this super thoughtful people. 
who are really concerned about bringing the king back to Jerusalem. But it's not enough that they've got this good idea to bring the king back to Jerusalem. They have to point out that they're the only ones who have this good idea. Uh, I can't believe that we're the ones who have to bring this up. I can't believe nobody else just thought of this. I mean, they, they can't be happy that they have a good idea. They have to criticize everyone else that they didn't have the same good idea. You're not sensitive enough to think like we think. We're the super sensitive, insightful people, obviously, and we thought of this first. Um, and John read 1 Corinthians 13 this morning. Love doesn't exalt itself. Love, love doesn't vaunt itself. Love doesn't self-promote. But that's what Israel's all about. They're self-promoting. Hey, we had this good idea, and we thought of it first, and you pitiful, sorry guys, didn't think of it before we did. Well, this stirs David up to address Judah. Verse 11. So King David sent to Zadok and Abiathar the priest, saying, Speak to the elders of Judah. Why are you the last to bring the king back to his house, since the word of all Israel have come to the king to this very house? You are my brethren. You are my bone and my flesh. Why then are you the last to bring back the king? And say to Amasa, are you not my bone and my flesh? God, do so to me and more also, if you're not commander of the army before me continually in place of Joab. So he swayed the hearts of all the men of Judah, just as the heart of one man, so that they sent this word to the king, return you and all your servants. Then the king returned and came to the Jordan. And Judah came to Gilgal to go to meet the king, to escort the king across the Jordan. So David communicates to his countrymen in Judah, say, hey guys, I guess it's time to go home. So let's, let's pull this together. Let's get this moving and let's, let's get back to Jerusalem. He addresses specifically Amasa, who Absalom put in charge of the army. Absalom demoted Joab. Well, Joab was out there with David. So uh, Absalom put Amasa in charge of the army. Amasa was probably another nephew of David. Because David calls him, you're my bone, you're my flesh, you're my man, you're one of us, you're my bone and my flesh. Um, so at this point, David doesn't demote Amasa and say, you're no longer in charge, Joab is. David doesn't do that. He affirms Amasa's role. It's not only politically sensitive to leave him in place, but this is a perfect opportunity to get Joab out of the way. David has got to be absolutely sick of Joab at this point. He can't control him. He can't restrain him. But he does try to do this passive thing where he says, okay, well, Joab, you know, Amasa's in charge. Joab has just killed Absalom. And rather than dealing with Joab directly, he does it in this roundabout way. And he makes this overture to bring Judah back into the fold. He says, and he's saying, you're forgiven, you're pardoned. Well, He's talked to Israel, he's talked to Judah, but Benjamin still needs to be addressed. Verse 16, and Shimei, the son of Gera, a Benjamite, anybody remember him? He was from Bahurim. He hurried and came down with the men of Judah to meet King David. There were a thousand men of Benjamin with him and Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul and his 15 sons and his 20 servants with him. And they went over the Jordan before the king. Then a ferry boat went across to carry over the king's household and to do what he thought good. Now Shimei, the son of Gera, fell down before the king when he had crossed the Jordan. Remember, Shimei was that relative of Saul who cursed David and threw rocks at him when David was on his way out of Jerusalem, fleeing from before Absalom's invasion. 
That was Shimei. Remember him? Now also here's Ziba who showed up. Ziba was the caretaker of Mephibosheth who lied and said, Mephibosheth is no longer loyal to you. And then David believed his, his, his uh, uh, testimony and awarded him with all the inheritance that he had set aside for Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth was Jonathan's lame son, remember? So, so David gave to Ziba everything. So we have these two Benjamites, Shimei and Ziba, along with a, a thousand more Benjamites who rush out to greet David. Verse 19. Then he said to the king, Do not let my lord impute iniquity to me, or remember what wrong your servant did on the day that my lord left the king, uh, that my lord the king left Jerusalem, that the king should take it to heart. For I, your servant, know that I have sinned. Therefore, here I am, the first to come today of all the house of Joseph to go down to meet my Lord, the king. Shimei repents publicly. He says, you know I've sinned. I know I've sinned. Please don't hold it against me. What's David, what can David do at this point? He's got to forgive him. This is an important man from the tribe of Benjamin. If David says no, if David kills Shimei, that means David is holding grudges and he's going to lose the tribe of Benjamin. He can't lose the tribe of Benjamin right now. So, so he spares him. Verse 21, but Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, this is Joab's brother, remember, Abishai, the son of Zeruiah answered and said, shall not Shimei be put to death for this because he cursed Yahweh's anointed? Uh, when Shimei was cursing the first time, it was Abishai that said, uh, can I go over and take off his head? I mean, that would shut him up if we did that. Can I go do that? And Joab, uh, David said, no, 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 no. You guys, you're always wanting to kill everybody. We're not going to do that. Well, now Abishai says this again. He says, you know, we really should have killed this guy before. And now it's time to kill him again. And David said, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah, that you should be adversaries to me today? What does that word adversary? It means it's Satan's. Why are you acting like Satan? Uh, David is saying, in so many words, get behind me, Satan, here. Why should you be adversaries to me today? Shall any man be put to death in, today in Israel? For do I not know that today I am king over Israel? Therefore the king said to Shimei, you shall not die. And the king swore to him. Um, so uh, sparing Shimei shows everybody that David is serious about restoration. Um, King Solomon is later going to have to deal with Shimei. Before David dies, he tells his son Solomon, he says, look, there's one guy in the kingdom that you need to be really wary of and you need to deal with this guy. And it's Shimei. David doesn't execute him, but Solomon later catches him in rebellion and Solomon is going to dispatch him. But we'll get to that sometime in 2020 or 2021 when we get to <laughs> Solomon's life. All right. But, uh, uh, now, in verse 24, Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king, and he had not cared for his feet, nor trimmed his mustache, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he returned in peace. So it was when he had come to Jerusalem to meet the king that the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? And he answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me, for your servant said, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go to the king, because your servant is lame." And he has slandered your servant to my lord the king. But my lord the king is like the angel of God. Therefore do what is good in your eyes. For all my father's house were but dead men before my lord the king. Yet you set your servant among those who eat at your own table. Therefore, what right have I still to cry out any more to the king? So the king said to him, Why do you speak any more of these matters? I have said you and Ziba divide the land. Then Mephibosheth said to the king, Rather, let him take it all, inasmuch as my lord the king has come back in peace to his own house. Mephibosheth 
while David was away, he doesn't wash his clothes, he doesn't shave, his, he doesn't trim his mustache or shave at all. He doesn't take care of his feet. Remember, Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth is lame, and there may be a certain way that he has to either wrap his feet or care for his feet, but he doesn't do that. He doesn't take care of himself the whole time that David's gone as a sign of grief. He can't go anywhere. All he can do is, is this. He can just say and show David, I haven't, I haven't anointed my head with oil. I haven't, I haven't celebrated I haven't been feasting. I haven't been partying the whole time that you've been gone. Uh, Mephibosheth's loyalty has never wa wavered. He's always been on David's side, despite what Mephibosheth's servant said to David. Remember, Ziba went out and said, look, Mephibosheth has turned against you, but I'm with you. And he lied to David. Uh, but, but David, in response to that, you know, he gave all of, all of the inheritance to Ziba now David says, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're just going to split the property between Ziba and Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth says, you know what? I don't, I don't care. Let him have it all. I don't need any of it. I'm just happy that you're back home. That's what makes me happy. Well, did David do the right thing by dividing it up here? Again, it seems like he might have just killed Ziba for his lies and for his rebellion and for his subterfuge. Uh, Ziba deserved really harsh judgment. But again, here's David working to pacify Benjamin and not give them any reason to stir up further rebellion or distrust. Verse 31, And Barzillai the Gileadite came down from Rogalim and went across the Jordan with the king to escort him across the Jordan. Now Barzillai was very aged, he was a very aged man, 80 years old, and he had provided the king with supplies while he stayed at Mahanaim, for he was a very rich man. Remember the big feast that was waiting for David when he finally got way out of the land and he was in the wilderness? This was the man that put the big spread of all the honey and cheese and all the great uh, supplies for David's men. Barzillai was his name. And the king said to Barzillai, come across with me and I will provide for you while you're with me in Jerusalem. Let me, let me repay the favor. Let's go feast in Jerusalem. But Barzillai said to the king, how long have I to live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? I am today 80 years old. Can I discern between good or bad? Can your servant taste what I eat or what I drink? Can I hear any longer the voice of singing men and singing women? He said, I'm, I'm too old for this. I, I'm, I'm just thankful for you, but I don't want to go party. Why then should your servant be a further burden to my Lord, the king? Your servant will go a little way across the Jordan with the king. And why should the king repay me with such a great reward? Please let your servant turn back again that I may die in my own city near the grave of my father and mother. But here is your servant Chimham. Let him cross over with my lord the king and do for him what seems good to you. And the king answered, Chimham shall cross over with me and I will do for him what seems good to you. Now whatever you request of me, I will do for you. Then all the people went over the Jordan and when the king had crossed over, the king kissed Barzillai and blessed him, and he returned to his own place. David still has the loyal support of the Gentiles who served with him in the wilderness. He's, David is so good at making friends and allies who, who serve him in this way. He makes friends among the Gentiles that are more loyal than his own countrymen. Over and over and over throughout David's life, there are Philistines who would, who would wash David's feet, who would stand by David through thick and thin, and then you've got Judahites and Benjamites who want his head. Um, so this, this king, this lord, Barzillai, he says, I'm too old, I can't go back with you, I'd love to, but, but I just can't. Why don't you take my servant, Chimham? Now the Bible's so full of 
great baby names. So if any of you young ladies want to earmark Chimham, um, I'd love to have a little baby Chimham to baptize one day. Um, but he says, here, take my servant Chimham and, and take him back. Now, here's a funny little footnote to history. Chimham's name shows up again in Jeremiah. When the apostate Israelites are dragging Jeremiah down to Egypt um, and they're persecuting him, they stop near Bethlehem at the inn of Chimham. So Chimham evidently sets up a family business outside of Bethlehem of all places, and that family business is an inn. It's a hotel. He sets up a hotel business near Bethlehem. Now there's a weird little coincidence, one of those neat little footnotes in history. Obviously he didn't build enough rooms by the first century, um, (laughs) but uh, I don't know how effective his business plan was. But isn't that funny? Isn't that a curious little thing? Okay, so let's recap. Israel sent a few emissaries to David, and they said, hey, let's get the king back to Jerusalem. And David says, yes, let's get back to Jerusalem. So David communicates to Judah, and Judah shows up to to come put together this big procession. And Benjamin shows up too, a thousand of them. And they say, okay, well, let's go cross the river. But here's the problem. They did this before the big party from Israel, the big party from the northern tribes shows up. And the the easily offended northern Israelites can't deal with this. They are not happy about this at all. Uh, Now, in verse 40, Now the king went on to Gilgal, and Chimham went on with him, and all the people of Judah escorted the king, and also half the people of Israel. And that's just just half the uh, nobles that they sent down to begin with. Just then, all the men of Israel came to the king, and they said to the king, Why have our brethren, the men of Judah, stolen you away? See the, see the accusation there? They stole you away and brought the king, his household, and all David's men with him across the Jordan. So all the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, Because the king is a close relative of ours, why then are you angry over this matter? Have we ever eaten at the king's expense? Or has he given us any gift? Has David shown any favoritism to Judah ever? And all the men of Israel answered the men of Judah and said, We have ten shares in the king. You know, we have ten tribes up here. We have ten shares in the king. Therefore, we also have more right to David than you. Why then do you despise us? Were we not the first to advise bringing back our king? This was our idea. This was all us. This was our idea. Yet the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. Israel feels left out. They feel very angry. But this isn't the first time they've acted this way. Back in the time of Judges, remember, um, Gideon chased the Midianites across the river. And he had a great victory over the Midianites. And when he crosses back over the river, who's waiting for him? It's men of Israel, it's men of Ephraim, men of the northern tribes. And they complain and they rebuke Gideon and they say, why didn't you call us and let us know that you were in pursuit? Why didn't you let us participate in this? Well, lots of reasons. First of all, remember how God narrowed and narrowed and narrowed Gideon's army down to just a handful of men. The last thing we need is these self-promoting, prideful Ephraimites in this group. That's first of all, that's one reason. But the other reason we didn't call on you is because this is how you act. This is what you do all the time. You make it about you. It's not, it's, this is not about you. This is about the people of God. 
But then Gideon pacifies them and he smooths it over and then everybody goes home and he makes them feel really good about themselves and, uh, and then everything's fine. But then later, Jephthah, another judge, he has to go across the river and fight Ammonites. And when, when he comes back across the river, who's waiting for him? Again, it's Ephraimites, it's Northern Israel who, who are waiting for him. And they say, why didn't you include us? And they became so contentious that Jephthah had to kill a bunch of them just to shut them up. Later, we're going to get to the conflict of Rehoboam and Jeroboam, but it's not like this break between the northern and southern tribes just comes from nowhere. It's not like it just happens overnight. There's this progressive, gradual hostility between them because northern Israel is so easily offended and they're always oversensitive to being left out of things. At the same time, they're the first ones to set up shrines and altars to pagan gods. They're the ones who always need their bacon saved from tyrants and oppressors. And and so when we see these kinds of profiles in the scriptures, it always makes me want to stop and say, okay, I don't want to be like that ever. (laughs) You know, I don't I don't want to act like that. I don't want to think like that. It's a it's a bad, it's a bad example that these men are are setting. And we don't we don't want to follow them in their folly. So right now, what are they upset about now? They're upset about who gets to escort the king back to Jerusalem. That's what they're upset about. You know, this extremely fine, critical theological point, right? Who gets to walk with the king back to Jerusalem? Uh, it's, it's a great moral quandary. It's a great moral principle here that they're fighting over. And, and it's so important, you know, I'm being facetious. It's not that important but it's important to them and it leads to another civil war. There just happens to be a worthless man, a rebel, an opportunist listening to all this and he's ready to start conflict. Um, chapter, uh, chapter 20. And then there happened to be there a rebel whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjamite. And he blew the trumpet and said, we have no share in David, nor do we have an inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. So every man of Israel deserted David and followed Sheba, the son of victory. But the men of Judah from the Jordan as far as Jerusalem remained loyal to their king. So the nobility of Israel show up to escort David and they're offended and they leave in a huff with this man Sheba who just wants to create a conflict. And then Judah and Benjamin proceed on to Jerusalem. Verse 3. Now David came to his house at Jerusalem and the king took the 10 women, his concubines, whom he had left to keep the house, and he put them in seclusion and supported them, but did not go into them. So they were shut up to the day of their death, living in widowhood. Remember, Absalom had violated these women. And now David says, I'm, I'm, I can't touch them anymore. I can't have anything to do with them. And he shuts them up. There's no, there's no way There's no way to justify this. This is cruel. This is wicked. This is awful. Uh, First of all, David shouldn't have multiplied wives to begin with. He was forbidden. He was prohibited from multiplying wives. But now that he has them, he is under obligation to treat them with as much honor and attention as as they deserve as a wife of uh, a man of Israel. So we can't justify this, and I don't have a lot more to say about this. This is just awful. It's ugly. And when we see things like this, we say, okay, we need a king who loves his bride. We need a king who loves uh, his, his wife. And we get that in Jesus. Obviously, we don't have that in David. And we're not going to get it in Solomon either. Um, but verse 4, the king said to Amasa, assemble the men of Judah for me within three days and be present here yourself. So Amasa went to assemble the men of Judah 
but he delayed longer than the set time which David had appointed him. And David said to Abishai, Now Sheba the son of Bichri will do to us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he find for himself fortified cities and escape us. So Joab's men with the Carathites, the Pelathites, and all the mighty men went out after him, and they went out of Jerusalem to pursue Sheba the son of Bichri. There's a fear Sheba's going to do us more damage than Absalom did, so David wants to strike immediately. Remember, that's what Ahithophel said Absalom needed to do. You need to strike immediately. That was good advice. The problem is that David tells Amasa, hey, get your men together, let's go, and Amasa can't get his act together. Amasa has no experience. He's got no organizational skills. He's just thrown into this role by Absalom, and so David's elite fighting forces then have to suit up to go pursue this rebel. Verse 8, when they were at the large stone, which is at Gibeon, Amasa came before them. Now Joab was dressed in battle armor. On it was a belt with a sword fastened in its sheath at his hips. And as he was going forward, it fell out. His sword was exposed. Then Joab said to Amasa, are you in health, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard and with his right hand to kiss him, but, but Amasa did not notice the sword that was in Joab's hand, and he struck him with it in the stomach, and his entrails poured out on the ground, and he did not strike him again, thus he died. Then Joab and Abishai his brother pursued Sheba the son of Bichri. Meanwhile, one of Joab's men stood near Amasa and said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, follow Joab. But Amasa wallowed in his blood in the middle of the highway, and when the man saw that all the people stood still, he moved Amasa from the highway to the field and threw a garment over him when he saw that everyone came upon him halted. When he was removed from the highway, all the people went on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. Uh, Joab is all concerned about morale, and then he does something like this. Again, it's so confusing. When Amasa finally pulls himself together, he shows up on the battlefield and he, present himself, he presents himself to Joab's fighting men camped at Gibeon, which was a bad move. Amasa should have stayed home. Joab is not going to put up with this, with this usurper, and so he kills him as soon as he can without warning. And again, what should we expect from Joab at this point? We know he's going to do this. Joab cuts him one time and leaves him to die. And this is so demoralizing to the army that Joab has to throw his body into the field so nobody sees it when they walk by, when they're marching by on the way to go get Sheba. Verse 14, And he went through all the tribes of Israel to Abel and Beth Maka and all the Beerites. So they were gathered together and also went after Sheba. And then they came and besieged him in Abel of Beth Maka. And they cast up a siege mound against the city, and it stood by the rampart. And all the people who were with Joab battered the wall to throw it down. Then a wise woman cried out from the city, Here, here, please say to Joab, come nearby, that I may speak with you. When he had come near to her, the woman said, Are you Joab? He answered, I am. Then she said to him, Hear the words of your maidservant. He answered, I'm listening. So she spoke, saying, They used to talk in former times, saying, They shall surely seek guidance at Abel. And so they would end disputes. So Joab and the army pursue Sheba all the way to the city. And when they get to the city, there's a woman there on the walls who calls down to the army and says, there's a proverb around here that when you, when you have trouble, you go up to the city of Abel and they will help you sort out your problems. So this town in the northernmost part of the city, uh, this northernmost part of Israel is full of wise men. It's full of wise women. And so this woman asks, why would you ever uh, make war with a city like this? What grief have we caused you? We're philosophers. We're not, we're not fighters. Verse 19. 
She says, I I am among the peaceful and the faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city and a mother in Israel. Why would you swallow up the inheritance of Yahweh? And Joab answered and said, far be it, far be it from me that I should swallow up or destroy. Yeah, right, Joab, what are you talking about? That I should swallow, that's all you do. That is not so. But a man from the mountains of Ephraim, Sheba, the son of Bichri by name, has raised his hand against the king, against David. Deliver him only and I will depart from the city. That's, that, we're just here for him. Send him out and we'll leave you alone. So the woman said to Joab, watch, his head will be thrown to you over the wall. Well, this, is a, this woman's wearing chain mail. And she's not just a wise woman. Uh, she's a... a She's a She-Ra or something. She's a He-Woman. Then the woman in her wisdom went to all the people and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and threw it out to Joab. Then he blew a trumpet and they withdrew from the city, every man to his tent. So Joab returned to the king at Jerusalem. Um, It's a good thing they didn't destroy the city. It's a good thing they found another solution because that, again, would have put things on a bad footing and create more bad blood with the northern tribes of Israel. It would create more bad blood with Ephraim. So it was good that this other solution presented itself. Hey, not all of us have to die. Maybe we just deal with this rebel. If we just throw your head over the, over the wall, this is over. And so we're going to do that. And Sheba obviously made a bad decision back when he stirred up this trouble. Well, that is now at rest. Back when David's kingdom was first established, we had a list of men who were set up in their various offices. Now that we're renewing the kingdom, we're putting things back together again, and we get another list, and this is going to be all we read today. And Joab was over all the army of Israel. Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Carathites and the Pelethites. Adoram was in charge of revenue. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder. Shiva was scribe. Zadok and Abiathar were the priests. And Ira the Jerite was the chief minister under David. We get another list of everybody who's in charge. So David has now reordered, he's reconstituted the kingdom. Well, what are we to make of all this? The silver lining to all this chaos and all this calamity is that now we have a clear path to Solomon as king. All the rivals have been taken out of the way. Once the promise came that David uh, would, would have a son that would rule on the throne forever, he would have a son who would build the Lord's house. Once that promise came to David that God would build his house, the question is, who is going to be the son of the promise? Who will be the heir of this covenant who will build the Lord's house? Well, we have that answered now. Amnon, it's not him. Amnon is gone. He's not the son of the promise. Absalom, is it Absalom? No, he's finished. It's not him. The tribe of Benjamin has been subdued. So no longer do we have any rivals from the house of Saul. They are, Benjamin has to grovel just to get back into the kingdom. So there's nothing going on in Benjamin in terms of rebellion. The 10 tribes of Israel have been spanked publicly again. And so they're going to have to cool it for a while. We have peace. We know now who our king is going to be. We know who it is. It's Solomon. There's no doubt. And that brings peace. Knowing who your king is, knowing how things are going to go, knowing where the kingdom is headed is stabilizing. It was for them. It is for us. Knowing how things are going to work out, 
It gives us peace. It gives us rest. We know who our king is going to be. There's no question. So take encouragement. Rest in this, that whatever insanity or cruelty or atrocities you read about or see in the world or whatever you experience, this unrest that we are experiencing is just a blip compared to an eternity of peace where the son of David rules and his rule is realized over the whole earth. We, you and I, are living in the ugly chapters right now. And these are ugly chapters. This is, this is hard stuff to read. It's hard stuff to hear. You and I are living in the ugly chapters right now before the glory to come. And it is coming. Frankly, I couldn't live and I couldn't function without the trust that God is holding his kingdom together. It's very easy to get discouraged. It's very easy to think, well, the church is nothing but infighting and distrust and it's envious and, and there's all this competitiveness. These guys are trying to say, oh, I love the king more. No, I love the king more. No, I'm more loyal to the king. And we do the same thing. I love Jesus more. No, you don't. I love Jesus more. Look at me and look at my piety. I am more loyal to the king. And so it feels like the stability of the kingdom is always threatened. Are we going to survive? Are we going to survive as a congregation? Are we going to survive as families? Is the denomination going to hold together? Is the church at large going to hold together? But we have this hope that God overcomes the ugly chapters. God overcomes the bickering and the sin. He, he overcomes the hurt feelings of the easily offended. He overcomes the stubbornness and the trivialities. He overcomes the apathy. He overcomes it by his divine grace and his wisdom. If Jesus were not actively building his church, we would have been wiped off the map a long time ago. We would have destroyed ourselves. We would have collapsed under our own weight. The fact that we're still standing means that Jesus is still building his church. The Holy Spirit is still working in us and through us. And that means his reign will be established just as sure that Solomon is headed for the throne. So the greater son of David will be enthroned over all the earth as king of the cosmos. That is our hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that you have preserved it and even the ugly parts that we, again, have to uh, muddle through and try to understand and scratch our heads and uh, have a hard time receiving. Father, we know that uh, through this, you show yourself faithful just as today. It's a helpful mirror to see that just as today, you are holding all things together by the power of your word. So give us strength to endure, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.